Well, good morning. Good to see each of you. Psalm 11 has been called the Song of the Steadfast. And it's only seven verses, but once we get into it, you'll see there's, there's a few truths that we need to grapple with. Uh, one of the first things I think that stands out, even as Joel read it, uh, were what I believe were well-meaning counselors told David in a specific situation to flee and to run. And then they develop the reason why they're telling him that. And then, of course, then he gives a response. That's the psalm. There are many reasons, as I was thinking through the counselors saying, flee and run away. Uh, there are many reasons for wanting to run away. Uh, some of them, as I found when I searched for these, are more humorous than others. For example, one four-year-old boy ran away from home because he didn't want a sister. Thankfully, he only made it as far as the treehouse in the backyard. A six-year-old little girl ran away from home because she didn't want to eat broccoli. And I don't believe she made it very far either. Four young siblings wrote their parents a note granting them a break. They said they were leaving home because they could tell their parents need a break. Included in the note was a list of food they packed so their parents wouldn't worry about them. They also included the precise time that they would return. And as a final encouragement, they wrote, don't worry, it will be a break for us, too. <laughs> so that was not from our home. OK, that's distant. I, I do not know who these people are, but there are more serious reasons for wanting to, to run away. And we're going to address those in a little bit. Um, what stands out about Psalm 11 is even a seasoned battle-hardened warrior like David felt the natural human impulse to run when his counselors came around him and said, flee like a bird to the mountains. The setting of this psalm, many believe it fits best within the historical context of David serving under King Saul. It's no secret that David had a difficult internship under King Saul. He was a spear-throwing king. Matter of fact, on, on at least one occasion, he threw a spear at his own son, Jonathan, Jonathan left and said, now I know that my dad is intent on killing David. So you have this angry, insecure, spear throwing king life under Saul in his palace uh, presented very few options. You could either remain or run. Do you know there are situations in life that present those options? Remaining or running. And we're going to talk about that in a second as well. Other believers believe this psalm is best placed in the days prior to Absalom's rebellion, Absalom is one of David's son. As a matter of fact, Scripture describes Absalom as the most handsome man in the kingdom from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. It also says that Absalom stole the hearts of the people. I wonder if this situation wouldn't have been more difficult for David than even being underneath the tutelage of a spear-throwing king. I'd personally rather take the spears of an insecure coward over the betrayal of a son. So either way, neither one is provable, but those are the possible settings for this psalm. And maybe the beauty of Psalm 11 is its versatility, that it can, that, that it can be applied to so many different situations. Every person will face situations where the choice is to remain or run. And I think David's, not only his response but the theology that he undergirds that response with is going to be very helpful for us this morning. Look at verse 1 again. 
This is really refuge or flight. Those are the options. David starts with his response. In the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? That's the answer. In the Lord, I take refuge. Now, there's immediately, if you understand the historical books at all, you will realize there were times eventually later on in David's life when he would decide that the prudent thing to do was what? Run. Hide in the caves. Keep moving in the mountains. But in this situation, it seems as though he has perceived in his counselors a fearful timidity and he's exposing the fact that their counsel moves against or is incompatible with a deep trust in who God is. The counsel flee like a bird to your mountain was not received well by David. Now understand who David was. Uh, I think David would have understood that if you run from trouble, trouble finds you. And if you keep running, trouble compounds and catches up with you. David faced a lion. A bear soon followed. After the bear, a giant stood on the battlefield cursing Yahweh. Before he faced the giant, an older brother wrongly rebuked him. After Goliath, a spear-throwing king. After Saul, a pagan enemy. After the Philistines, a beautiful woman. After Bathsheba, a rebelling son planning treachery. After Absalom, the perception of failed leadership. All these can cause that natural human impulse to want to run. From the lion to the perception of failed leadership. Troubles are everywhere, but running is rarely the answer. I want you to notice that the, the calming center in everything that David faced, this is the calming center of David's life in verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. Already in three other Psalms, he has said and captured this idea, this picture. In Psalm 2, verse 12, he says this, God's wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 511, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Psalm 7, verse 1, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Now the reason that the counselors are painting such a grim picture for David is found in verse 2. And really they end with, with this question. It's really a searching question. What can the righteous do in this situation, David? Look at verse 2. For behold, this is why they're telling him to flee like a bird to the mountains. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark. That's an assassination plot. They're, they're planning a stealthy attack to take out a high value target, which is David. If the foundations are destroyed, I mean, if this theocratic kingdom is crumbling, if you have a narcissistic and insecure king on the throne who's already repeatedly tried to kill you, what can you do? That's what they're saying. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So here's the truth that we need to understand in, in, a, in a fallen and evil world. David and people like him may be upright in heart. But his enemies are not upright simply means straight. It's the opposite of crooked, bent or perverted. 
And I think something we need to understand, and maybe something that is more difficult to grapple, is this truth. A trust, even a deep trust in the sovereignty of God, does not guarantee safety or deliverance in your current circumstances. But it does keep you focused on where your trust should be and what your next right action step is. Psalm 11 addresses a familiar human impulse, running from danger. When the voices, and maybe the voice within your own heart says, flee like a bird to the mountain. For David, it was assassination plot. For us, it may be something different. For example, some children run away when they are hurt, abused, or threatened at home. And this is understandable, and it is an appropriate reason to want to put distance between you and the danger. However, there's a better option than just running and compounding your problems if that's you in that situation. If you are in trouble in that kind of a situation, reach out to a leader that you trust. And rather than fleeing, let let us, let them help you in that situation. In those kinds of situations, fleeing can often create more problems, but you shouldn't stay in that kind of a dangerous situation either. There is a way out of that situation. You know, some children run away when they are bullied. They don't want to tell their parents. The son doesn't want to tell his father because of the shame that's involved. And both children don't want to tell their parents because sometimes the parents, they believe, will actually make the situation worse which would increase the bullying rather than remove the bullying. The flee, the, the impulse to flee in that situation is strong. Do we know how to help those who in their hearts want to run? Children and young adults run away when they feel unloved and unaccepted. And when love and acceptance are missing, the impulse to flee is strong. Sometimes young people think that leaving is less messy than staying. They have most of the times wrongly concluded that they are the problem and that by leaving, they're actually making it easier for everyone else involved in the situation. The impulse to flee when they feel like they're the problem and sometimes have been told they are the problem by the ones that should be caring for them. The impulse to flee in that situation is strong. Some young people and adults have lost hope. Life continues to pass by. Another day they wake up, they're tired. They're the kind of tired that sleep doesn't make go away because they've lost hope in this world. They think the pull of a trigger, the slit of a wrist, or a handful of Tylenol seems the best path forward. And in those situations, the impulse to flee is strong. You know, there's another kind of fleeing. Some adults flee from responsibility. And when a person runs away enough, they, can't, they can get to the place where fleeing is the only place they are comfortable. Matter of fact, running gives them a sense that they are in control. They're the ones initiating. They're the ones leaving. This kind of person doesn't face any real risk when he leaves And it puts distance between him or her and the the mess they've helped create. 
And for this individual, the impulse to flee again remains strong. Again, look at verse 1. What is the response to these? And this isn't just a spiritual platitude without actionable steps. This is a truth. In the Lord I take refuge. Finding refuge in God does not remove responsibility for the next right decision, but it provides confidence in the next decision being right. Let me repeat that because because we may have people here in a variety of situations who they want to flee like a bird of the mountain. They want to put distance between themselves and the danger, real or perceived. Finding refuge, finding safety in God does not remove responsibility for the next right decision, but it provides confidence in the next decision being right. Verse 3 captures the central reflective question of David's counselors. Look at that in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's a question they're asking David. Flee like a bird. There's an assassination attempt. They've already pulled the arrow back in the darkness. They're about to strike you. And listen, if the foundations, if the one sitting on the throne, if he's unstable, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And according to David, there are only two responses. Find refuge in God and flee or find refuge in God and remain. I was thinking about societies or cultures or countries where this would have been the case. Think of the choice a believer had under Pol Pot or Idi Amin Dada or Vladimir Lenin or Kim, Kim Jong-il. Where they are persecuting the righteous, the foundations have completely crumbled. What does a person do in that situation? Rather than provide a standard response to his timid counselors, look at what David does do. David puts forward a theological truth. And this brings us to the next big section as God the examiner. Look at verse 4. Here's David's response to his counselors. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. These pictures illustrate, they sound like they're just a repetition, but I actually believe they illustrate two different truths. Uh, the first one is imminence, or we would say closeness. The Lord is in his holy temple. The temple represented the earthly presence of God. It is not that God is isolated or restricted to a, a piece of architecture in Jerusalem. The point here is David is saying, no, the Lord is near. He's accessible. He's close. The Lord is with David in his crisis, not far off and indifferent. And the Lord is with you in your crisis. He's accessible. He's close at hand. There's also a transcendence. So you have this imminence, this closeness. But then you also have this transcendence, which is this. He's far above anything else. And, and that's communicated by the Lord's throne is in the heaven. So you have an earthly temple closeness and heaven. He is far above your situation. He is not so close that he is swayed by the scruples of an earthly kingdom. He is not so close that he can be bribed by King Saul. He is not so close that somehow he, he can be groomed and turned away from reality. He is far far above your specific situation. 
He is far above turning a blind eye to injustice or tolerating tyrannical leaders or human predators. He is far above that. Now, these pictures serve a dual purpose. They don't really contrast different places geographically, but different aspects of God. His throne is in the heavens. He is the sovereign king of the world. And yet he's right here among us this morning. And he hears your cry. Yahweh is present in the temple, close at hand. He is also in the heavens on his throne, the unchallenged divine judge and all-knowing examiner. Habakkuk quotes Psalm 11, verse 4. Habakkuk became my favorite book in the entire scriptures after trouble deeply invaded our family. And Habakkuk gave me permission to to reverently argue with God. I mean, the whole first section is, Lord, where are you? There's no justice in the land. I mean, he's just arguing. Habakkuk actually quotes this psalm long after David penned it. But then Habakkuk follows up verse 4 with this. Let all the earth keep silence before him. There is a point, even when we are in the darkness of affliction, when restless and irreverent chatter needs to stop. When complaining needs to stop. When singing stops. When offerings stop. And a reverent silence and trust begins. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is when Habakkuk in chapter 2, later in chapter 2, there's only three chapters in Habakkuk. This is when Habakkuk was starting to turn and realize the one he was arguing with, his throne is in the heavens. Look at the second part of verse 4. The theological truth broadens. God is both close and near. He's accessible and he's far above your situation. And then David says this, his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's no mere observer. We would say this, he's not just one in the crowd. He's one who closely perceives, examines, and evaluates. I was thinking about sort of observers as opposed to somebody who was close at hand. And I researched out of curiosity what the worst seats at Coors Field were. Right? That's where our Rockies baseball team plays their home games. Of course, nothing said that, that these are the worst seats because that's bad advertising. So rather than say that, they describe it as different things like recommended seats for impressing a guest. Hmm. Best seats for kids and family. Club and premium seating. Then I found what I was looking for. Recommended seats for partying and socializing. <laughs> right? They, they might as well just say, worst seats at Coors Field. Because they follow it up with this description. Close to a lot of alcohol concessions on the upper level, including a bar area. Great place to drink alcohol and socialize in the stadium. Okay, let me interpret that for you. Worst seats. These are, these are not the kids and family seats. And, and I, so the application here is rather than God being distant and distracted and forgetting what game he is even watching, 
Or in the section 402, which is 52 miles north on I-25, and all the players look like, you know, indistinguishable insects. I thought of God like the pitching coach. Closely examining one player, his intricate movements, how many times, how many, how many pitches he has thrown, and much better than a pitcher from a dugout, this coach already knows the outcome of the game before it even starts. He's close. He is far above and he knows everything. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. This is the idea of a God who misses nothing. Whether you are serving Him and you're never recognized, or whether you are being abused and you feel like nobody cares, God sees. His eyelids test the children of men. It is not, as we've been discussing in our ABS class on the reason for God, as one of the new atheists had suggested, that God is a celestial dictatorship that holds thought crime against his slaves and never lets them out of his sight, not even at death. This is a common view of God. If you view God as fictional, as indifferent or cruel, you will conclude he is a, he, he is a tyrant and you will refuse to submit to him because you have concluded he is not worthy. It's all a matter of relational perspective. If you view him as the true and living God, your heavenly father, who unconditionally loves you and provides for you, you will bow to him and you will take comfort in his justice and the guarantee that every wrong will be made right and no one gets away with the evil. That will be a comfort to you. It's all a matter of relational perspective. Some of my daughter's Male friends find me intimidating. And I'm okay with that. But if you ask them, they'll be like, no, he's, he's like a teddy bear. He's just so kind. It's all a matter of what? Relational perspective. Can I, can I be intense? Absolutely. Can I be unconditionally loving to the objects of my favor? Absolutely. All a matter of relational perspective. This is what David is communicating. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. And what is your response to that? Is that a comfort to you this morning? Or are you like, I don't want anyone knowing everything about me. See, that relational perspective just sort of, gave, sort of highlighted where your heart is with the Lord. Psalm 121 verse 4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. This is a comfort to those who know him. Now look at uh, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous. And again, as you come out of that relational perspective, for the believer, God's love is not incompatible with his testing. God's love is not incompatible with suffering in this world. Here's the difference. God tests to refine his children to nurture growth, to prune the branches, the dead branches off, to cause success and fruitfulness. Job knew this by experience. Listen to what Job said. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Proverbs 17.3 says, 
The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. Charles Spurgeon said the refiner is never far from the mouth of the furnace when his gold is in the fire. The Lord tests the righteous. But do you know with the wicked, it's a totally different narrative. He or she is not being tested, but the very objects of divine wrath. It's all a matter of relational perspective. Keep reading in verse 5. Look at verse 5. We'll begin at the beginning. The Lord tests the righteous, but... Here's the contrast. His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So Satan tempts people. God tests people to cause them to succeed. Satan tempts people to cause them to fail and for their destruction. Judas knew this by experience. Luke 22, verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Scripture says this about Judas. It says this about no other person. It would have been better if that man had never been born. Jesus told Simon Peter, and I want you to feel the contrast between two of the twelve. Satan enters into Judas. Jesus tells Peter before his threefold denial, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Do you know that happens to believers? That kind of a satanic sifting and trying can happen to a believer. But there's a difference. Jesus says to Judas, what you're going to do, do it quickly. It was a command, by the way, not a suggestion from the Lord. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I, here's the difference, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail And when you have turned again, see, he already sees past the denials, the shame, the failure, the regret. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So what's the difference? Relationship. Jesus prayed for Peter. He was not left alone. Judas was given a command and left alone. So the spiritual axiom that states God hates the sin but loves the sinner Right? We're familiar with that, right? Because it sounds so good. But it's not entirely true. As verse 5 says, God's soul hates the wicked. That is a person. And the one who loves violence. Psalm 5, earlier on, a few psalms earlier, it says this in verses 4 to 6, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Listen to what it says next. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. C.S. Lewis said, Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. As Romans 1.24 says, God gave them up to their Desires. Basically, in the end, God gives unbelievers what they have fought for their entire life. And that is freedom from himself. So David says of the violent person, look at verse six. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur 
A scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Just quickly, this seems to be an allusion back to the, the, the fiery fury of God's wrath on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Judgment that rained down on perverted wickedness. And then the idea of a scorching wind. Uh, the scorching wind would wither both crops and dry up vital water supplies necessary for life. So you have the idea of a swift judgment and something that naturally unfolds gradually, almost naturally. That's God's position towards the violent person. David prays to God. God hears, closely evaluates, and executes judgment. Let's look at the final verse. Because the psalm concludes with this affirmation. And it is an affirmation of God's righteousness. Look at verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. By the way, righteous deeds, that's justice. The upright shall behold his face. So God, God here, here it is. Here's at the end. You're telling me to flee. You're telling me that there's people ready to assassinate me. You're saying, what can the righteous do when the, the moral fabric of a society is crumbling? Listen, the Lord is the Lord is in his temple and the Lord is on his throne. And this is his posture towards the wicked. And then there's this final affirmation for the Lord is righteous. Don't doubt that he's not indifferent. He does care. God loves righteousness and justice. God's countenance smiles upon his children who live righteously. Jesus said this, and we, we just saw this when we came through the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? You know this. For they shall see God. Do you see God experientially? Do you see him in your life? David counters his desire to flee with three insights. The first is theological. Theology simply means what is true of God. Here's what is true of God. Verse 4. Yahweh is still on his throne and he will execute perfect justice in his time. Here's another thing that is true of God. Verse 7. The Lord is righteous and he loves justice. So whatever you're experiencing, whatever danger, whatever impulse to flee in your own heart, know this, God is still in control and God is a righteous God who loves justice. Secondly, David responds and counters this with a practical insight. Practical insights are basically you take what is true about God and you apply it to your next decision. Here's what is true of God. Look at verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous. And that may be all the explanation that you are given in this life. If you are a believer, the difficulties you experience, the choke points of life are from the hand of a loving God and they fit perfectly in His design for your life whether you, get, whether you understand it or not. Because he's not bound to give you a reason. He simply asks you to walk by faith. Romans 8.18 The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. In Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him but also suffer for His sake. Here's another practical point. Not only that the Lord 
is testing his children, but that, verse 7, he loves righteous deeds. How do we apply that? Well, today, do the right thing. If you messed up last week or last night, today, commit yourself to righteous deeds. Do the next right thing. Micah 6, verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The third insight that David gives, and the final one we'll look at, is spiritual. This is basically what truth is unseen that must be received by faith. Verse 7, the upright shall behold his face. That is a spiritual reality. So here are a few questions as we close out Psalm 11. Do you know God experientially or only theoretically? Do you know things about God? You have your your list about God, maybe your degree of studying God. Or do you know God? As Paul said, that I may know Him. It's that experiential knowledge. The power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed unto Him in His death. Does trouble make you angry with God? Or does it cause you to run to Him as your refuge? Do you know Him today by experience or only generally by knowledge like you would be able to study Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad? Do you know there's an eternal difference? I'm going to invite the music team forward. We're actually going to sing two songs of response. The first hymn, uh, I'm going to ask the music team to lead the first stanza and chorus. And as they're getting ready to lead us, I just want to apply the gospel to Psalm 11. God's justice and love are most clearly seen in the provision of His Son. The Lord sent His Son for you. God meets both His obligation of righteousness, that sin be punished. You know, sin must be punished. That's His obligation. For Him to love righteousness and be a righteous God, sin must be paid for. So God meets both His obligation and our obligation, which is the offering of an acceptable sin payment, which is a perfect lamb. And He meets both of these through His own Son, but they are to be received by faith. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the forgiveness of sin. That's that experiential relationship that He is now not just this sterile, far-off, seemingly indifferent God, but He is my eternal Father and His Son is my Savior. And finally, for anyone here really this morning, if you go all the way back to verse 1, which is David's answer, in the Lord I take refuge, are you in trouble? And are you in the kind of trouble that you can't get out of on your own? You know, we are here to help. Would love to help. The impulse to flee is strong, but in most situations, running only complicates the problem. Are you in trouble? Yes, theologically, God is your refuge. But God has also provided God-fearing believers around you in your life to help. 
And that is our offer as the leadership of this church and not just the leaders. I'm looking out. Um, there are many, many people here who would be a safe contact for you if you need help. Please stand. I'm going to pray.